Chapter 15 of Esther Reed's Namesake. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Esther Reed's Namesake by Pansy. Chapter 15 Theory and Practice. Esther's face flushed, and she waited with an eagerness that would have surprised him for Mr. Langham's answer. That word conversion was a very familiar one to her on her educated father's lips. Oh, yes, the professor said indulgently. Conversion is a good orthodox word, though we don't hear it tossed about as carelessly as it used to be. It simply means getting religion, Miss Farnham. Then what do both of them mean? The professor glanced whimsically at Mr. Vaughn. Clearly his companion was in earnest, and was not to be turned aside from a theological discussion merely for the sake of a visit with him. Then he gave himself to the business of answering. Both of them mean simply an effort of the will, a distinct decision, such a decision as settles the question involved for all time, so that it is not open again for consideration. Is that clear? Not very. Human wills are like all other human things, unstable affairs. What I will today, I am as likely as not to unwill tomorrow, without anything to justify it except a change of mood. How is one to settle anything for all time? If Mr. Langham had been looking at Esther just then, he would not have understood the intensity of interest that her face expressed. But he did not see it. He had turned toward the back seat and was regarding Faith with questioning eyes. Do you mean that seriously, Miss Farnham? We have a great many vacillating minds to deal with, it is true, but I should be sorry to think that all, or even most human wills, were such untrustworthy affairs. Do not you know scores of people who make decisions, and can be trusted not to swerve from them by so much as a hair's breadth, unless something occurs to throw new light on the situation? Oh, yes, of course, but I am not now thinking of trained minds or of highly cultivated ones. Think of the masses, those whom we are pleased to call the common people. Melindy and her family, for instance, though I think they are very uncommon people, but they are ignorant, and not in our sense of the word, trained to think. Yet here is some influence, or some power, which seems to have worked a complete change in their lives. How shall it be accounted for? If it is simply a change of will, that doesn't relieve the situation. How came they to will to change? Or, having willed, how is it that they can control their actions, and above all their speech, so as never to slip back for an hour to their old selves. That girl's mother says she is as different from what she used to be as though she were two girls. Ah, said Mr. Langham, now you touch a subject about which we still know so little that we may account it ignorance. Influences so subtle as to be unrecognizable, reaching back for one does not know how many generations, have been working their mysterious wills in conjunction with the wills of those who perhaps have never heard of them. It is an interesting and complex subject, but I do not believe we can manage it today to your satisfaction. Clearly this was intended for dismissal, but Esther could not forbear one question. Do you leave out the supernatural altogether from such changes as Faith has mentioned? The professor considered. Well, not altogether, of course, he said thoughtfully. The All-Father looks after his creatures in more minute ways than we shall probably ever fully understand. 
I have no doubt but that he will do his part in the world's work, whatever it is. Faith made a movement of impatience. But, I beg your pardon, Professor Langham, but I can't help feeling that that is simply begging the whole question. What I want to know is, what do you, what do the people who call themselves Christian, in distinction from us outsiders, think has happened to an entire family, when each member of it makes, in a given time, and not at the same time, a sudden and radical and lasting change in his life? They call it regeneration, said Esther firmly. Faith turned upon her quickly. And what, pray, is regeneration? Both men laughed, and Mr. Vaughn spoke gaily. Now, Miss Randall, confess yourself nonplussed. But Esther went back to the Sunday afternoons of her childhood and repeated quietly, Regeneration is the radical and permanent moral change wrought in the spiritual nature of a man by the Holy Spirit when he becomes a Christian, and added, I learned that when I was eight years old. Poor little eight-year-old, said Mr. Vaughn. I don't know, said Faith. I don't suppose that at eight such words were much harder to learn than entery mentery cuttery corn, and dozens of others that we rattled off and have forgotten. But Esther's long words seem to have served a good turn in helping her to have an intelligible answer to a question. At least, I suppose it is intelligible to people who believe such things. Say it again, Esther, please, and let us have a slower movement until I see if I can grasp it. But here Mr. Langham interposed with decision. Now see here, good people, we are out for a rest of mind and body, and if we persist in carrying textbook and argumentative debate along with us, we might as well have stayed in the laboratory. Let us cease to be learned, or even rational, and go in for what the youngsters call a jolly good time. Had he really begged the question, as Faith had hinted, or was he simply bent on a holiday? Did he hold to those old standard truths, or had he modern views of even the way of salvation? These questions Esther pondered, though joining outwardly in the gaiety that immediately prevailed. At last, annoyed by the constantly recurring questions, she asked herself irritably why she cared what he thought, and did not answer herself. One fact was plain to her, that she did care a great deal. If Mr. Armitage had been going to preach on that Sunday morning, he would have felt flattered by the size of his audience. At all times recognized as the popular preacher of the town, empty or even half-filled pews rarely disturbed his vision. But on this June morning every available seat was filled, even to the aisle chairs which were fastened to the pews, and it was becoming apparent that very soon mere standing room would be denied to latecomers. What a crowd! whispered the habitual attendants one to another, distastefully, and they waved their fans vigorously, and wished that the ushers would not jam more people into a seat than could possibly breathe there. It is a sad fact that elegant toilets were much crushed that day. The college turned out in full force this morning, was the comment of one young man who lighted his cigar almost before he cleared the church steps. Yes, said his friend, a regular crush, and it was all to hear a fellow who can't hold a candle to Armitage. I can't imagine why the Prex made such a fuss over his coming. I didn't see anything remarkable in the morning's effort, did you? I am sure he was remarkable for perseverance, was the reply, 
accompanied by an expressive shrug of shapely shoulders. His friend laughed. Yes, he certainly had the gift of continuance, if ever a fellow had. Who is he, Parker, and what is he here for? He is a college professor, comes from New England, I think, or New York, somewhere about there. I didn't hear the Prex's harangue, you know. As nearly as I can make out, the special object of his visit here at this time is to comfort the soul of Professor Welland. Viewed from a religious standpoint, he thinks we are all going to the dogs together, and this McIntyre, was that his name, is expected to arrest the downward trend. Oh, he is? Well, I don't see how. He seemed to me to be serving up a lot of warmed-over platitudes that I have heard ever since I was a small boy, mixed up with a fanatical sensationalism that belongs to the ranter rather than to the college-bred. However, that is a style which I should think would just suit Professor Welland. What an old fossil he is! Look here, Millers, suppose you and I go down this afternoon by the 518 train. We shall be in time for a stroll in the park and dinner at the club, and there is to be glorious music at the Allerton tonight. Some oratorio, I forget what, but it is sure to be fine. That will arrest a downward trend much quicker than Professor McIntyre's harangue, I am sure. The two laughed and sauntered on, planning their evening's amusement. Just behind them walked Esther Randall, near enough to have heard their words had she been giving them attention. But she had not even noticed their presence. Mind and heart were absorbed in another direction. Whether or not this young woman was on the downward trend, her thoughts at least had been arrested. She could not have explained why every sentence in the address that morning had probed to her very soul, but never in her life had she listened to words that seemed so to search her. If the speaker had known her whole life history, nay, even the very thoughts of her heart, such as were known only to God, he could not have spoken more directly to her. His theme had been a unified life, and the thought chiefly emphasized had been the importance of having a central purpose, a definite aim, a settled conviction strong enough to permeate and rule the life. As he described the wretchedness of those who are forever reconsidering, retesting the same truths, hesitating, arguing, doubting, Esther saw herself held up before herself for consideration. As he spoke briefly and eloquently of that other high road where walked the few who had settled some things and carried about with them a determining principle to act as a test thermometer on matters that came up for decision, Esther felt that he was describing not her, but her father. She lost herself then for a little, going over once more the old conflict between her religion and her theory of religion. When her attention returned to the speaker, he was quoting from Dr. Watson's Dynamics of Religion, wherein he shows that love to Christ, supreme, all-pervading, was ever and must ever be the dynamic force in religion. Listen, said the speaker, to Dr. Watson's word about Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who summoned love to meet the severe demands of faith, and wedded for the first time the ideas of passion and righteousness. Jesus identifies righteousness with himself, and has brought it to pass that no man can love him without loving righteousness. He quoted the entire passage, and then threw all the enthusiasm of his young, strong nature into a description of the kind of living there would be with Jesus enthroned in the heart, if, in short, one really had a passion for Christ. 
Suddenly, as if she were a central figure in the picture he was sketching, appeared to Esther a vision of Melindy. Melindy was an illustration of his subject. Melindy had a passion for Christ. She loved him with a fervor that kept all other passions in the background. Not only that, but if any of them were found to be antagonistic to Christ, Esther felt instinctively that the girl would annihilate them. She had seen her face one day, when she was studying a copy of Hoffman's Christ that Faith Farnham had sent her. What there was in Melindy's face that day, Esther coveted. She saw herself plainly revealed as one who had been trying fitfully and faultily to live righteousness without having been first really wedded to Jesus, with such a passion of self-renouncing love as should absorb all other loves and plans and hopes. The next question that took hold of her with something like indignation was, why should Melindy, the untrained, illiterate girl, have come suddenly into this rich experience while she, the child of many prayers, with generations behind her of stand Christians, to do for her all that heredity could do, was still, after almost a decade of Christian profession, floundering in the questionings and perplexities of a beginner. Not even like a beginner. Was it to be supposed that Melindy ever questioned? Did she have days when she knew she had disgraced her profession at almost every turn, and ill-treated her lord? Esther, who had seen the girl but three times in her life, felt certain that no such days came to her. Why was it? Could it be that there was something about this matter of conversion that she, with all her early education in the catechism and its proof-texts, did not understand, and Melindy did? Self-surrender! The speaker had repeated the phrase several times in those sentences which probed. Theoretically, she knew just what it meant. As a personal matter, did she understand and accept it? All the while she was moving rapidly about Mrs. Victor's kitchen, giving skilled attention to the preparation of an excellent dinner, this undercurrent of thought flowed on. It kept her grave and more silent than usual. Miss Victor, who was helping with the dessert, noticed this and was oppressed by it. At the dinner table she commented, That solemn-faced girl out there has made me so nervous, just in working with her for a half hour, that I feel as though I should fly. Mother, aren't you glad that it is almost time for college to close, so that you can be done with her? Mrs. Victor heaved a weary sigh. Oh, I don't know. Esther is trying in some respects, and yet I don't know what I shall do without her. She has some excellent qualities. She is thorough in all that she undertakes, and can be relied upon implicitly to do as she is directed. Humph, said the son of the house. I should think such qualities would offset any amount of glumness, and even an occasional flash of gunpowder. It would with men. I think as much, said his father. You had better try to hold on to her through the vacation. A college student who is thorough and conscientious about such commonplace affairs as housework is rare, I fancy. Try her with an offer, at least. Her father is bound to be poor, since he is a home missionary and she can save a good deal simply by staying where she is, to say nothing of paying her wages. She won't stay, said Mrs. Victor gloomily. She told Selma the other day that she was counting the hours now. This sentence Esther heard as she came with the coffee. She surmised what the talk had been, and said softly and firmly, quite to herself, 
No, indeed she won't. You may be sure of that. End of chapter 15 Recording by Tricia G.